Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. You hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Massachusetts inaugurated an historic slate of top leaders with Maura Healy as governor and Kim Driscoll as lieutenant governor, and many expect the new lieutenant governor to reshape her role. Meanwhile, in the U.S. House, days of chaos surrounded Republican Kevin McCarthy's bid to become speaker. What does this discord mean for governing in the new Congress? And as the state legislature wrapped up its last session, lawmakers tried to push through a slew of bills, including one aimed at addressing the widespread thefts of catalytic converters. That and more during our full hour with the Mass Politics Profs. Joining me remotely... Erin O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at UMass Boston. Hello, Erin. Hello, thrilled to be here. Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the Public Administration Degree Program at Central Connecticut State University. Hi, Gerald. Hello, Happy New Year. And Shannon Jenkins, Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at UMass Dartmouth and a Professor of Political Science. Welcome back, Shannon. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. All three are members of the Mass Politics Profs blog. Well, let's just jump in um, with uh, the great news in Massachusetts, the historic um, inauguration of Maura Healey. I assume this office with humility. It is the honor of my life to lead this state. I mean, this is a real moment. What's How it's being viewed across the country and, and here is really, really amazing, Erin. Yeah, I think the rest of the country thought, didn't Massachusetts do this a while ago? And the answer is no. <laughs> um, and here in New England, we know that uh, Massachusetts has been very slow to elect women. We've been last amongst the New England states. That remains so in the state legislature. But, um, you know, we've got women in all oh, five of the six top constitutional uh, officers. That's a huge change for Massachusetts. It is historic. And Maura Healey is also, um, you know, an out lesbian. So this is a big change. And we should expect to see some policy differences with these women running the show. Do you agree, Gerald? Policy differences to come. I, I think that's a really great question. You know, I... It, Healy has spent so much time trying to say she's uh, going to be just like Baker that I'm really curious about exactly what policy differences we will see uh, given this situation. Uh, the, uh, with two women in the big three, how will that uh, you know how will that play? That's going to be fascinating. Hmm. Shannon. So I'm going to, you know, I have to agree with Aaron here. I do think it will make a difference. You know, there's just decades of political science research that suggests. Um, that when you have sort of more diverse representation, both in terms of gender identity, sexuality, um, you know, race, um, that we, we 
government considers different issues, right? Different issues get pulled into the mix. Um, and so I'm not sure that, right, the, the, there's going to be a swing to the left or to the right. Um, I just think there may be a different way of looking at things and different priorities that emerge um, because of the identities of the people who hold these offices. Hmm. Now, maybe, Gerald, what you meant when you said she said she's going to be like Baker is that um, a lot of people view her as being, well, to date anyway, to being fairly centrist. And if you look at some of her um just named folks to her cabinet. I don't think there's a rabble rouser in there. So, and maybe that's not the point. Um, but is that what you meant? Absolutely. It was a, sort of a, an ideological uh, comment rather than identity. And and the thing is that she really has strained herself to uh, to be a centrist and to present herself as a centrist. And frankly, it's interesting to me because I, I would have expected Massachusetts progressives to uh, not have given her as free a ride as they have, and it'll be interesting to see if how they react to her uh, in her first hundred days, particularly. Mm. Um, what would you, would any of you care to guess what the emphasis may be as she rolls out, roll now, really, in a, in the next couple of days, first days in office? Anybody? I mean, I think we'll see from an agenda setting perspective, that's where, you know, identity matters. It's not like to Gerald's points ideologically, sure, but no politician, no governor can take up every issue that matters to individuals in Massachusetts. And I think that's where we'll see the difference. I think she will be, you know, do, following some of what, um, you know, that her, you know, national cohort has done some discussion of childcare. She did work on guns while uh, in the AG's office. So those are things that Governor Baker may or may not have voted the same as Maura Healy, but Maura Healy is more likely to make sure those issues are on the front burner. Um, agree, Gerald? Uh, I, yes, I do agree. I do think, however, that, uh, you know, there's been uh, press reports about her uh, pushing for uh, a, a new round of tax cuts, uh, oddly enough, uh, at odds with the speaker on tax cuts, which is so the dynamic of the big three, uh, Spilka, Mariano and uh, the governor is going to be fascinating uh, because it does seem like there'll be um, the Senate president and the governor will, will find common cause, but the speaker does have some institutional advantages. Well, picking that up, Shannon, um, does the fact that it's fair, you know, pretty much a Democratic legislature, where does that leave her? That's an opportunity, but it also could be dangerous. Yeah, you know, in thinking about this, I'm, I'm sort of reminded of, you know, when Deval Patrick came to office and there was all these high hopes about all these things that were going to be accomplished, um, you know, under Patrick's term. And, you know, shortly after he took office, the economy collapsed and it was more about um, surviving. And I don't wonder, you know, nervously whether Maura Healy might finish, you know, face some of those same daunting odds that we're talking about, you know, all these things that she might accomplish. Um, but if the state, you know, falls, the economy falls into recession, um, that's going to severely dampen her ability to accomplish sort of a broad sweeping legislative agenda. I guess one thing she does have going for her, right, is that the millionaire's tax did pass. And while that, that um, money won't come, you know, won't be coming for, for a while yet, um, she still has the ability to sort of lead the discussions about how we're going to spend that money and how we're going to allocate it. And so I think um, that gives her a little bit more latitude than perhaps Patrick did in a recession to, um, to accomplish some things. It also gives her a moment to weigh in on 
um, the conversation about amending that, uh, the passage of that, that ballot question, so that uh, folks who sold their house for more than a million dollars would not be included. As you know, that was a huge point in all of the ads for um, against uh, the millionaire's tax. Um, some have suggested that won't stop some people take, from taking their money and leaving the state anyway. Um, but that definitely might mean something. I would add, I would add something here that I think actually the governor has uh, more Healy has uh, done a really good job of, of managing expectations right I don't think she's coming in with the burden of uh, you know sweeping you know uh, progressive expectations I think part of her centrist posture has served her well in that she has not I think she may have she and even Massachusetts progressives may have learned the lesson of the Deval Patrick administration uh, to be more realistic, to go in with a more pragmatic approach. And of course, we all have to acknowledge that, you know, uh, Charlie Baker wasn't expecting COVID. Nobody was. Um, yeah. And that's a whole other bailiwick if you find yourself um, having to to uh, govern around that kind of devastating um event, which impacted all of us. All right, let me move to Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll. Uh, This is a very powerful woman. I mean, she's done a lot uh, in her role as mayor of Salem. She obviously highly thought of by, even though they didn't run as a ticket per se, um, highly thought of by Maura Healy. She was heading up the the, the, uh, transition team. So most people are suggesting that she's um, um, getting ready to reshape the role of lieutenant governor, which can be and seems to have been, with maybe some exceptions over time, ceremonial, Uh, meaning that, you know, you're there, you're supportive. Um, Maybe you take on some individual projects. Karen Polito was very big on uh, young women and men in STEM, for example, that was her initiative. I probably could name some others, but a bigger role than that uh, for lieutenant for the lieutenant governorship. Do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, I think that uh, the the uh, lieutenant governor is, is probably more important than people sort of realize. I think Karen Polito was a, a very good lieutenant governor, and the thing that lieutenant governors uh, tend to be good at, and I think Driscoll will be good at. In fact, maybe even better at is uh, sort of being a liaison to local government. And as a former mayor, I think she's going to hit the ground running in that respect. And that and that is a very important thing to be. It's not it's not an unimportant task. And it's very important to the governor that they have their, uh, you know, their 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 ear to the ground in terms of what local officials want and what they believe. So I think, frankly, the most important job in this uh, environment for the lieutenant governor will be relating to local governments. And and she's ideally suited, I think, for the task. Hmm, that really is an important job. Um, Aaron, does that uh, persuade you, Gerald's argument about um, Driscoll possibly being the liaison to local governments, that she will be reshaping the role of lieutenant governor? I think she has every intention to reshape uh, that uh, that role. I share some of Shannon's skepticism that uh, that will happen. But, you know, there was an article that ran on the first in the Globe that was basically saying this, you know, um, the lieutenant governor isn't usually a powerful post. Kim Driscoll may change that. Now, they say may in there, but I was just most struck by the fact that that piece ran. That piece doesn't run if Kim Driscoll doesn't want to signal that. And she gave the interviews. 
And so it's kind of a, it's a fluff piece. It's, you know, the, the, a transition team piece, but nonetheless, the fact that it ran signals, she does want to reshape the role. Now she's careful in the article to say, you know, Karen Polito was a full partner of Baker. I'm just continuing that. Um, but I think, you know, I don't see Kim Driscoll and the Lieutenant Governor's role for long. I think she um, is an ambitious politician, which is a good thing. And uh, that article and her willingness to reshape or her desire to reshape suggests that, you know, this isn't her last stop in politics. Well, let me ask this provocative question. All right. Um, <laughs> I love it. Uh, when we read the leadership studies, um, the surveys about how women lead versus how men lead, recognizing that, you know, everybody's not the same, but in general, you know, what's attributed to women in leadership who work together is a kind of consensus building, which would make that a different scenario from a Baker and Polito, no matter how close they were or how much um, he admired her expertise and, you know, respected her. Um, is it possible that now what many have said over the years comes into play? And in fact, that's not threatening to Maura Healy to have a strong uh, lieutenant governor who is doing more than has been done by people in that role. Anybody can start. It's certainly possible that that, that could happen. They do have different backgrounds, right? One is a is a prosecutor, the other is a mayor. They're, so I mean, they they there there's room there for for contrasting styles that might coalesce around, uh, you know, consensus building. So I, I think that the ingredients are there. It is possible. Obviously, we can't predict how their personalities or what have you uh, will impact their working relationship, but it's certainly not out of the question. Um, are you persuaded by this, you know, tons of research about how women leaders uh, interact with each other, that that could happen? Aaron? You know, Kelly, uh, my, I'm not an expert in leadership studies in part because I hate them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and it just, I, I know, I know. I just, to me, and this, uh, all kidding aside, I'm probably not being completely fair to a literature I don't fully know, but I have written some on leadership. And to me, the field has always felt a bit soft. Like I teach women in politics and I say to students, public opinion differences between men and women isn't, you know, women are from Mars and men are from Venus. These are overlapping circles, right? Most overlap. There are small differences amongst how men and women lead. Um, I just think that field tends to overplay those differences. And it's also the case, you know, that um, being governor, being lieutenant governor is still thought of in traditionally masculine terms, right? You know, you have to win, it's winner take all. And so while women may lead differently broadly in the highest realms of politics, if anything, I think women are more apt to conform to what has been stereotypically male modes of leadership, top down, that kind of thing. So, you know, my more serious take is I'm not sure how applicable some of these leadership studies are to elite elite levels mm. and there are as gerald said real personality differences it is the case that the two of them seem to be um partners in terms of hiring for that administration and that is in keeping with your thesis shannon so i just say you know, i would agree with what aaron said you know a lot of those leadership studies look at corporations right where we're leaders are accountable to a board or, you know, maybe more broadly stockholders as opposed to political offices where 
the politicians are accountable to the voters and voters definitely have gendered perceptions of different offices. Um, you know, governors, governor's positions may be slightly less gendered than the presidency in part because um, governors deal with portfolios that um, where sort of gendered issues like education and healthcare are more prominent. At the same point in time, voters expect people in executive offices to display sort of stereotypical masculine um, behavior sets. And so I think in a certain sense, um, women leaders in those roles, to Aaron's point, are constrained in their ability to be gender nonconforming in their leadership styles, um, or to be more stereotypical feminine, I think, in their leadership styles, because that's not what voters expect of of governors. They expect people who have, you know, agency and who are, you know, leaders, right? And 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 so that I think may constrain Healy's ability to sort of re-envision um, how that relationship works. Mm. The other thing that we have to remind ourselves here is that uh, the job of being a good lieutenant governor, being supportive of the governor, of doing, for example, being that liaison to local government, that also happens to be incredibly useful for a future run for governor. So there's no contrast between ambition. She doesn't have to get a lot of press to make headway towards a, a successful you know, future governor's run, for example. In fact, the role of relating to local officials and local governments is probably key to that future. Karen Polito's decision not to run was not because she hadn't done the spade work. She had. It was a particular environment that was just anomalous, but she had definitely been a good lieutenant governor in both terms of her supportive role and cultivating support around the state. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University, Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at UMass Boston, and Shannon Jenkins, Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at UMass Dartmouth and a professor of political science. And we're discussing the newly inaugurated historic state leaders and new legislators uh, in Massachusetts. Um, let me just ask a question of you. Um, how did you receive uh, Governor Baker's leave-taking? Um, he had some things he wanted to say about how, you know, what he did in office. I'll play a little clip of his official goodbye. Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito and I will leave the State House tomorrow for the last time. We will do so with love and appreciation for what you, the people of Massachusetts, have shown us from day one. And in the speech, he, of course, uh, put forth some of his accomplishments, and he was particularly excited about or, or extolling his uh, budgetary successes as governor. Let's take a listen. We took a billion dollar budget deficit, turned it into a $5 billion surplus and gave $3 billion back to taxpayers and put $7 billion into the state's rainy day fund. Well, given that we're in a state of inflation, you know, those are numbers that mean something to folks. Um, how did you receive his leave taking, uh, Gerald? Well, I mean, I, I thought it a typical and a, a, a skillful exit speech. I mean, obviously, he doesn't want to create any controversies, and he took credit for the easy credit to take. And, uh, you know, it's, it, I, there was nothing terribly surprising about it. You don't expect him to, to have any sharpness or uh, to, re, to express any uh, sort of positions that might actually draw criticism. He's going on to a job where I can assure you he'll be getting lots of criticism as the president of the NCAA. But I thought his uh, leave speech was, uh, 
you know, was kind of like his his popularity in general. He's popular for very general reasons. Uh, his popularity emanates from kind of nonspecific, uh, you know, support. Mm. Um, uh, Shannon? Yeah, you know, I was struck by sort of his leave taking was just like the rest of his, you know, gubernatorial tenure. Pretty amiable, non-controversial, <laughs> you know, um, not... I think he would like to tout his accomplishments, but, you know, the biggest accomplishment, the budget, I mean, really that ebbs and flows with the state of the economy. Um, so I'm not sure how much credit he can take for that. So it just seems to be reflective of his entire gubernatorial ten tenor, you know, you know, Mr. Nice Guy um, leaving the office. I'm not sure, um, Aaron, that his... Uh approval numbers were as high as he left. They may be. Um, but of course, as we know, he was named most popular governor for years and years and years, certainly. Yep. You know, I, it remind, I have a cousin uh, who always, uh, we go to the Cape and he orders vanilla ice cream and I always give him a hard time. And he always <laughs> reminds me that vanilla is the most popular ice cream flavor in the United States. Uh, my metaphor is pretty clear here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and he was rewarded for it repeatedly. You know, so Charlie Baker is a good politician and he's a politician who learned over time. You know, we forget he lost the first time he, you know, he, he tried to capture the office. I thought the speech was very vanilla, but vanilla in a way that works for him. So that's not a negative critique. It's just the kind of politician he is. And I thought though we didn't play the clip. He talked a lot about bipartisanship and, mm -hmm. and how Massachusetts, we actually get things done. And that's a part of his record, especially as we see the, the direction of the national uh, GOP, the Republican Party. That's a part of his record that I think is gonna look shinier and shinier and shinier the longer this goes on. So it didn't surprise me that the speech wasn't, you know, a parting shot or anything like that, but his emphasis on bipartisanship, government working, working with people across the aisle. That is signature Baker, and it is something that there's a real clamoring for from the electorate. Um, I will note that it in his leave-taking, um, this happened before his official you know, statement, um, his administration awarded $4.1 in grants to 11 community-based organizations to increase access to reproductive health care across Massachusetts, and that includes abortion. Yep. You know, that's for his for all of his vanilla-ness, as you have described it. I mean, that's a kind of a powerful uh, statement, given the tenor of the times. Indeed. Um, uh, you know, it, yes, it happened right at the end. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, it happened. And it shows that Charlie Baker is, again, not going in the direction of the national GOP. I hadn't, I, it wasn't until I was prepping for this show that I knew about that. And I think you're right. Hats off, kudos. Okay. Um, I don't want to leave this conversation about Massachusetts political goings on without, of course, talking about that last minute push uh, for the last uh, legislative session, which, by the way, is welcoming all kinds of, of new folks of color to the state house for the first time. And I think that's of note. Uh, but I just pulled out this one bill that they pushed that I think is going to be very popular with voters, which has to do with this catalytic converter thefts. This sounds kind of maybe to some people like a small thing, but it's huge. And um, it's a problem nationwide. But this is something that I think um, <laughs> will 
get a lot of response from folks. What say you, Gerald? Well, I'm not familiar with the uh, with the specifics of the bill, but I'm familiar with the issue. And I, I obviously it's it's the kind of issue that uh, cause. I mean, in my neighborhood, uh, I had neighbors telling, "Park your car behind the, park it next to." A, I mean, so it has been yeah. something that people in you know suburban neighborhoods certainly talk a lot about. I'll say that. So uh, there's no question that it's striking a chord. I mean, I think it's economically become a huge deal. That's why I'm bringing it up, uh, Shannon. Is does this? Make sense to you to this? I suppose it's economically important if it happens to you. If it doesn't yeah. happen to you, it's less important. Um, unlike, you know, Gerald, I, I was not aware of this. My neighbors hadn't told me this. Um, so I was not also aware of that bill. And so, I mean, I think. I think the potential for it is limited because if it is successful, it means that fewer people are touched by the issue and therefore fewer people are aware of that this was an issue that the state legislature solved, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I think they're going to tell us all about it um, if I know them, <laughs> um, Aaron, <laughs> uh, because I live on Nextdoor. That's a, one of those uh, online oh, yeah, I know you know, discussion <laughs> groups. And this is huge. I mean, I'm at the point now where I'm thinking somebody's going to come for my 22-year-old car. I mean, <laughs> I mean, and it's very expensive. So I actually think that this may be a situation where even if it doesn't, it feels like it doesn't impact you immediately, it may in terms of the rise of cost of these parts. So I, I see it as something that actually has quite a bit of common appeal. Um, I, I think mm. it's hard to prove a negative though. Mm. Like if mine doesn't get stolen, then I'm not worried. To Shannon's point, you know, mine doesn't get stolen, so I'm not worried about it. Um, and I'm certainly not giving credit to politicians to for things like that not happening to me. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I think it depends on where you live. I, I too, right. did, I've right. heard nothing about this. It has, um, it has so to because it's very anecdotal in, in that way. And I'm also struck by the fact that it became an issue. To me, you know, this is the cynic in me is that this must be costing insurance companies money. Right. Um, <laughs> the insurance companies have to be pushing to make this a policy issue. So I, I, I think if it were, were it just happening to regular people and it was costing us, no one would care. The fact that insurance companies are all of a sudden footing a bill, then I, you know, I see their interest being met in this. Mm. And the people who are attentive to it are voters, right? These are the sort of middle class upper middle class suburbanites, they're voters. So with the insurance company interest and the people who are particularly, you know, sort of worried about it, they're all sort of attentive. And that's, that makes it possible. That makes it more viable. Hmm. All right. Something else that I just think is fascinating from a history standpoint. Uh, we began our discussion talking about the historic nature of the inauguration of Maura Healy and Lieutenant uh, and Kim Driscoll as Lieutenant Governor. There's another pair just like this in Arkansas. And at the top of the ticket, or now, not the top of the ticket, but in the in the uh, the appropriate state house in Arkansas is Sarah Huckabee Sanders, um, and with her, um, a lieutenant governor who is also a woman. Very interesting, I would think, um, to sort of check on both of these teams over the next year and just be interesting, don't you think? It will be interesting. I mean, There's does no that mean anything to you, uh, political scientists? Are you just like, eh? Oh well. <laughs> Well, the fact that go ahead, the the fact that Huckabee Sanders and her lieutenant governor are hard right conservatives, and obviously that that our duo in Massachusetts are anything but that makes it sort of interesting just to to sort of see how different ideological poles uh, govern from the from a you know 
female team perspective, I guess. Well, to make it clear, she is the first woman to lead the state. So that, you know, right. that, that hasn't happened. Mara Healy is the first elected woman, but she's the first woman to lead the state in Arkansas. And her father had led it before, so. Well, yeah, that's true, too. She did have some some legacy, I guess, uh, in that conversation. But still, so she's the first. That what that couldn't have been easy to win. Um, all right, weigh in, Erin. Um, you know, I, I teach women in politics, and this semester I'm signing a book that just came out, uh, well, 2022. It's Gendering the GOP, Intraparty mm. Politics and Republican Women's Representation in Congress. Of course, that's Congress, but I think there are lessons here um, uh, for us that uh, women in, the field of women in politics is uh, oftentimes associated with the left or with Democrats, and that's because Democrats have been more likely to elect women than Republicans. But in the most recent Congress, uh, two Congresses, I should say, we've seen a change that there actually were big gains amongst Republican women. Um, and Republican women tend to govern differently than Democratic women, of course, because of ideology and their party politics. But also, um, Republican women tend to focus on things like um, motherhood that motherhood is central to why they care about an issue. They um, lean into gender, air quotes, gender differences and ways that uh, female Democrats are less likely to do. So, um, you know, if I had a, a student doing a doctoral dissertation, which I have plenty, but or a master's thesis, to look at the rhetoric surrounding policy um, in Arkansas, in Massachusetts, how do these elected leaders talk about the policy positions that they're taking? Do they focus on stereotypically female things like motherhood? And I care about this issue because of my experience as a mother. I think a discourse analysis would um, be quite revelatory in this comparative case. Mm. Shannon, did you weigh in? So to follow up on what Erin said, I think if we look historically at uh, women in the Republican Party, they tended to be more liberal than their male counterparts. Um, but as the parties have polarized, that's become less true. Um, women in the, the GOP tend to be just as conservative as their male counterparts. And so there are fewer differences in terms of how they vote and how they behave. Um, I think Aaron's right about the sorts of issues that they lean in. Um, but I don't think anymore that we should expect Republican women uh, to be more liberal than Republican men. Uh, and we'll see that, I think, in the way that Huckabee governs. Mm. Okay, well, that's going to be interesting to that's that's definitely a political science study, it seems to me, for somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Allie, very... do you want to come and get a PhD with us? <laughs> no, are you kidding? I can't spell PhD. Yes. <laughs> um, let me just uh, in at least this part of our discussion with this. Um, you pointed out the this case, uh, Aaron, and I I thought that it was interesting that it touches on both uh, the outgoing. Governor Baker and the incoming Maura Healey. Um, this is uh, the, the attorney general asking the high court to restore the charges in the soldier's home case. As we know, during um, COVID, that turned into a super spreader site and a lot of people died, 76 veterans exactly. And um, um, it's just been a mess. Um, went to court they were the, the the officials that were originally charged with having been neg negligent or uh, putting the elderly veterans at risk of con of uh, contracting uh, COVID nineteen, 
were deemed maybe the circumstances, um, as one as one uh, judge said, um, it it just you know it, it wasn't it. He he said they were they were not um, culpable in in the in the end, but now um, there's a request to restore those charges, um, and this was something that uh, um, as Attorney General Maura Healy was uh, very much involved in, and she got the grand jury indictments uh, against the former Superintendent Bennett Walsh and the ex medical director Dr. David Clinton. How does this play out politically? Uh, I. I think Gerald suggested this one, but I too took a lot of uh, interest in it. I think it showed, you know, we're talking a lot about how Maura Healy and um, Charlie Baker seem to be a bit hand in hand. Here's a very clear example of where that is not the case. Maura Healy fought hard on the soldier's home. She wanted accountability there. She didn't feel like she got it. You know, for Charlie Baker, um, by almost all accounts, the person in charge at the soldier's home was um, not equipped for the job, uh, you know, a, a, basically a political appointee, a favor, uh, a favor gone terribly awry. People died. Uh, it, it's that dire. So I, I think it goes to show that um, some of Maura Healy's, um, uh, you can still, it's easier to settle some scores from the governor's office than it is the AG's office, even though, you know, the governor is a harder job in a lot of ways. So, uh, yeah, I think her prosecutorial, you know, her prosecutorial, uh, that's not right, but um, <laughs> that element of her is going to be part of how she plays out in the governor's office, and she's not afraid to go retrospective to make some things right that she doesn't think were handled correctly. Hmm. Well, so far, so good in this discussion about what's happening around Massachusetts. There is a lot happening nationally. So coming up, it's more insight and analysis from the mass politics profs. What can we expect from a divided Congress and after the extended battle for Republican Party leadership? This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our full hour discussion with three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University, and Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. Let's pick up right where we left off. And I was about to make a turn to what has just been mind-blowing to observe in, in Washington um, as this battle for the speakership on led by Kevin McCarthy, who I assumed, I think it's fair to say, that he would be the next speaker, having the initial backing of President Trump and some other prominent Republicans. And it has gone on. As we are taping, it's not over. Uh, there have been six votes. And um, it appears that the opposition, made up of a core of, of very right um, Republican lawmakers, are have their position is just firmed up. So let's take a listen to a couple of them. Um, this is Matt Gates from Florida. 
And he is vehemently opposed to McCarthy as speaker and went on to nominate Jim Jordan instead. I rise to nominate the most talented, hardest working member of the Republican conference who just gave a speech with more vision than we have ever heard from the alternative. I'm nominating Jim Jordan. Now, Jim Jordan was supporting um, McCarthy. Uh, so Republican Representative Chip Roy of Texas nominated Jordan again, just to make the point, even though, well, let's take a listen. Jim has said he doesn't want that nomination, and Jim has been down here nominating Kevin, and I respect that. But we do not have the tools or the leadership yet to stop the swamp. And for those reasons, I am nominating Jim Jordan from Ohio for Speaker of the House of Representatives. Okay, so um, they're going to go at it again. I guess my question to you, political scientists, uh, as, as has been, as has been um, said now, in, to put some context to this fight, this hasn't happened in 100 years, and the last time it happened, by the way, it was to somebody from Massachusetts named Frederick Gillette. Um, and that went nine votes, which I assume went several days. Uh, there are folks who have said they're prepared to just stay there forever. Uh, just one thing that is fascinating, just a little piece of history that I find fascinating. This means, because there is no speaker, the rest of the Congress-elect people cannot be seated. They cannot be sworn in. Um, and that, of course, means that they can't govern or do anything because they are frozen to wait on this. The other thing is some funny little side things have happened. Like one person realized he didn't have Internet because he's not yet a member of Congress. <laughs> so everybody's sort of in limbo. Um, and it's I just don't even know what to say about it. Who would like to start? <laughs> well, I, I will say that this is one of those things that we love as political scientists because suddenly people are going to talk about a process and they're going to talk about the institution <laughs> of Congress and how things get done in a practical way. It's a fascinating thing. And the in the 1923 history example, which I didn't know until I read about it as a result of this uh, debacle, fascinating. Interestingly, one of the things, though, about this you know, debacle is that this GOP is not split on policy like the 1923 GOP was between progressives and, and traditional Republicans. They are only divided on tactics. It's a tactical situation. You have these hardliners who want to be really tactically, tactically obnoxious, and you have McCarthy who's trying to be a little less so. And so it's an interesting difference because it has really probably nothing to do with policy. Well, Shannon, uh, Kevin McCarthy moved his boxes into the speaker's office <laughs> because he thought he was going to be speaker and maybe he will be. And I guess, you know, you can you can suffer humiliation and keep it moving. But this seems a lot. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> at some point he moves on or, or or they move on. Something has to happen here. Right. Yeah, well, you know, as of this taping, right, you know, McCarthy's just signaled that he's going to give theoretically all of the hardliners everything they want. Mm. I'm not convinced that that's enough because I think really what these people want is attention. Mm. Um, they don't actually want to govern. To Gerald's point, there's not really sort of policy differences here. Um, and I, I'm not really sure they care if government can't function, right? Mm. So uh, McCarthy's in a really hard spot. He has given everything but the kitchen sink. Maybe even the kitchen sink is in there now. Um, and if this doesn't get him the votes, right, there's, I don't, I don't see a path forward for him, right? The Democrats aren't going to help him. Um, and, you know, honestly, 
I don't see sort of the more moderate rational Republicans giving into the demands of these 20 or so um, other Republicans because then they basically win, right? So I don't know where this goes. I think it's going to take a while to sort this out. Um, and I'm not sure the GOP is capable of sorting it out at this moment. Erin. Mm. Well, you know, Kelly, you asked originally, uh, you know, what's Congress going to get done? Nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a metaphor for moving forward. And listen, I've enjoyed, it's not my best self, but I've enjoyed <laughs> looking at Kevin McCarthy moving his boxes in, or not him, but having that happen. And, you know, just the, like the People Magazine drama of it all. Um, but more seriously, these, the, most of these 20 individuals who are holding it up, uh, as my colleagues have astutely said, are just about, you know, metaphorically blowing government up, getting attention, seeing nothing happen. They're insurrectionist. Mm. The, the, the lesson from the midterms most took was that insurrectionist, that kind of um, not conservative policy, Trumpy policy, blow it up, um, don't respect election results. This is the force that is preventing the GOP from electing a speaker. So I actually think it's really dangerous if their um, demands are met. And increasingly, it looks like they will be. They have given away. You know, McCarthy, if he even gets in, has literally given everything away, as Shannon said. And if I'm a moderate Republican, why would you go along with that? Mm. These individual, the fact that they want it so that um, one individual in the caucus can try to recall the speaker, this is chaos. And I think it's been a little bit lost that the individuals who have such voice in this are incredibly dangerous people in terms of uh, respecting democracy. Well, um, to your point, the President Trump has former President Trump has weighed in, asking mm -hmm. them to stand down. And um, Boebert now he does it. Well, yes, but I'm just saying, and he hasn't done it in like they don't. Well, have I mean, you know, on January 6th, he should have done it. Well, I I understand your point, but my point here is that they politely Lauren Boebert politely told him. I respect you. You're my favorite president. But no, we're not standing down. If he starts calling her names, you know, um, <laughs> uh, whatever on his truth.net, whatever that is, mm -hmm. you know, Twitter light. Um, yes, he said that. And that is important. Um, and it does suggest to me that he doesn't have quite the same kind of power. But that, that was polite by Donald Trump standards. Yeah. He, if he was really going to bat for Kevin McCarthy, Boebert would have a nickname, Gates would have a mm. nickname, Gordon would have a nickname, yeah, and he would be relentless. Well, that I would also mention this, um, and I'm I'm sorry that I can't remember now which one of the group said it, but one of them in expressing opposition to Kevin McCarthy's uh, possible leadership said, "I don't want somebody who next September, which is the time that the budget runs out and the government could you know potentially shut down, is going to uh, try to fix that." <laughs> I was like, "Oh my God!" Yeah. yeah so, and, and I mean, I think it I think it really demonstrates that how the next two years are going to go with a GOP majority in Congress, right? It is an ungovernable majority. And I'm, I'm frankly quite stumped why McCarthy wants the job, right? Yeah. I mean, who wants that job? Um, it's particularly now that he's given everything away. It is going to be two years of chaos. 
Um, the government, I expect we will shut down the government. Um, I am deeply worried about our ability to meet our obligations with our debts. Um, I suspect that the debt ceiling will be held hostage. Um, it's, it's, it's funny a little bit, as Aaron points out, right? But at the same point in time, as she also said, it's deeply scary yeah. um, about where we're going as a country and how we manage to move forward and govern, because that's what the House is supposed to do. It's supposed to govern. And I don't think it's going to be able to do that. Ooh, yeah, there's a lot going on. Well, while all of this is happening, um, which is enough of... Uh, I guess, Erin, you said it, the People magazine drama. There's always there's also some other drama going on um, with one of the congressmen elect. That would be George Santos. If we can assume that is his name, um, we don't know. Uh, for folks who haven't been paying attention, he was elected in New York. Um, and it turns out everything that he said about himself in terms of his uh, true true his alleged true story, his biography, um, was a lie. So now he's admitted in two separate interviews that he lied, uh, but he claims he hasn't committed any crimes and he arrived in Washington ready to be inaugurated with everybody else. He's not spoken to um, any press other than conservative press. But uh, on WABC radio, he acknowledged that he had fabricated some facts. I'm not a criminal, not here not abroad in any jurisdiction in the world have I ever committed any crimes. To get down to the nit and gritty, I'm not a fraud. I'm not a, a criminal who defrauded the entire country and made up this fictional character and ran for Congress. I've been around a long time. I mean, a lot of people know me. They know who I am. They've done business dealings with me. And I'm not going to make excuses for this, but a lot of people overstate in their resumes or um, twist a little bit or engrandate themselves. I'm not saying I'm not guilty of that. Well, of course, that's all of that is exactly what he did. And there have been very few on the Republican side to chastise him. You know, a lot of Democrats have said he should not be seated. He should resign. Of course, he has no intention of doing that. But one who did, and let's point out he was resigning, Representative Kevin Brady from Texas, who again is resigning, um, did say publicly that he thought Santos should resign. Um, and uh, he uh, made his point in a Fox News Sunday interview to saying that uh, Santos would need to take some huge steps to regain public trust. So look, I think this is troubling in so many ways. Uh, certainly he has lied repeatedly. At the end of the day, though, uh, this is a decision, whether he resigns or stays, that needs to be made between he and the voters who elected him. Uh, he's certainly going to have to consider resigning. So um, just to be clear about the fabrications, um, so people think, you know, how, how big is it, in case you haven't paid attention? Um, he made up his education, his work history, he lied about how much he uh, owns in real estate. He has not yet been clear about where money came from and uh, that supported his campaign, quite a lot of money, $750,000. Um, hiding a marriage, he claims to be gay. And I, one of the things that I just thought was super shocking for me, even for, you know people do lie, um, that he said at one point that he had employees who were at the Pulse nightclub. Um, and as um, many of you remember, that was the site of a tragic murders, um, gay nightclub. 
So, I mean, that to me was just like, wow, that that is so beyond embellishment. I just can't even get it. So, in fact, what the voters, uh, the, the person that voters put in office, they don't know. Uh, and that's where we are. Comments, Shannon. Can I share just a fun fact related to the whole speaker debacle? And that is that there are no rules in the House yet. And so generally speaking, part of the rules is about or dictate how C-SPAN can film, right? There are no rules um, dictating how C-SPAN can film right now. And so a favorite, favorite genre of C-SPAN right now seems to be shots of George Santos sitting by himself. So the Republicans have not quite called him out. At the same point in time, he appears to be persona non grata on the House floor um, because every time he, in that statement he said, I'm not a criminal, I felt like he should, the word yet should be added, right? <laughs> the Brazilian government would disagree with his statement. Um, I think the New York uh, Attorney General's office may be investigating. There's investigations into his campaign finance. So I think the key word um, around criminal is yet, not a criminal yet. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with three members of the Mass Politics Profs blog, Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, and Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. Um, here's the thing. While, this is, while the whole speaker debacle and Santos is happening um, with the Republicans, as they are rightly uh, appropriately described being in chaos at the moment, um, on the Democratic side of the House, uh, Hakeem Jeffries became a first um, as he ascended to minority, uh, the speakership role, after Nancy Pelosi. It's a generational change. It's just a historic change um, from a race perspective. A lot of change there. And our own Catherine Clark, meaning our own from Massachusetts, um, ascended to uh, minority whip, which is a big job. She's very... Um, excited about the role. It's definitely a, a powerful one. And um, she represents, for, for Democratic women, kind of the rise of the women of people of color um, in Massachusetts and beyond. And uh, she told NBC last year that she believes that um, their rise will be inspiring for women. It is a message that I hope that we can send to everyone and especially to the girls of this uh, nation that they can do anything they want to do. So that's great that all of this is happening uh, on the House side with leadership, uh, with generational change. But you all, how does this work? If you, cause you start off by saying, Aaron, because of the chaos on the Republican side, nothing will happen. Well, I listen, uh, Von Hakeem Jeffries, I have loved the last couple days, right? Mm -hmm. Because how many glowing speeches have we all heard about him, yeah. right? Because the, the renomination occurs. And so uh, the Democrats are uh, aligned. They look like adults in the room. Um, and, you know, I think they're a good leadership team. But compared to the chaos and uh, the GOP, they look like a great leadership team simply by having their ducks in a row. Um, and it's also nice to see, if you're someone who cares about um, representation, as I do, that the people who have their ducks in the row are the people who look a lot like more like America than the House GOP. 
We know descriptive representation, the physical being there matters because young people imagine themselves, take it as natural that they themselves could be in those roles. So I think the benefits of descriptive representation are still there and maybe even stronger because they look like the adults in the room compared to a very white, a very male, mass G or not mass GOP, but national GOP that uh, is struggling with the most basics of getting their um, job done. All right, well, what's your prediction for um, what happens after somebody, maybe even Kevin McCarthy, is elected speaker? What's what's the next big agenda item that they'll be fighting over? Because there will be fighting. The rules. Mm, okay. Which rules in specific are you thinking of? The House rules. They have to do that after they elect the speaker. That's going to be a donny bro. Wow. Okay. It's going to be governing by executive order. I mean, that's essentially what what we've seen over the past, you know, um, decade, the rise of the presidency and the executive order. And with the GOP in control of the House um, and the Democrats control of the Senate, I expect very little to come out of Congress. um, And most policy decisions will come via executive order. Shannon, do you think, and I guess I should ask this of you uh, too, Gerald, um, since Assuming that Kevin McCarthy has given in to every demand by the the small group that opposing him, one of them was that they have a lot of power to remove him. So would he then would you expect him to be removed pretty quickly after finally getting the job, given the, the tenor of the discussion at this point or argument? Well, that's certainly a possibility, but to be honest, it's really impossible to predict because I don't know what he's he's offered them. We don't know the, you know, we don't know the specifics. And of course, the rules fight happens next. So mm-hmm. maybe, you know, he promised I'll do this, but then they actually have to vote on the rules. So mm-hmm. it's a different fight, right? He may he may turn he may he may sort of double cross him. Who knows? Well, he can't last long if he double crosses. I'm guessing, but who? Yeah. Well, if he doesn't allow for that rule, <laughs> yeah. Okay. That they, you know. All right, Aaron, taking all that in, what what say you? Well, I've got two congressionalists on the line here, but uh, it would be hard to, my understanding is that it would be hard to remove him because, okay, say they give the five, that five members, uh, only five members can um, uh, call to remove the speaker. But then there's a vote. I mean, what we've been seeing is 90% of the GOP caucus is voting in favor of McCarthy. The votes to remove him aren't there. Um, But the votes, because you need such a high threshold to get him in, and these 20 are unwilling to go along. So I'm sure part of what he's thinking is, yes, the speaker doesn't want to have perpetual votes um, to uh, remove him, even if he wins them, because that weakens his power. But he's not concerned about being removed, I think, at least immediately once he gets mm-hmm. in. What can we expect? Assuming to Gerald's points that rules happen, um, we'll see. You know, Jim Jordan has already indicated this on his um, floor speeches that uh, we will see a lot of investigations into the Biden administration and uh, possibly the FBI. Uh, investigations that most Americans don't want, but the constituents of those 20 definitely do. And I would also say that I think it's not necessarily a bad thing for Jeffries and Clark and the Democratic uh, minority leadership team. If the Republicans are in such disarray, your role as minority leader is to try to become majority leader. Mm, 
And, and so the, the more disarray, the more they're doing Biden investigations and FBI investigation and other things like that, the median voter isn't into that. Yes, we have very uh, gerrymandered districts, but the, the majority for the Republicans is so slim in the House that I think Jeffries and Clark will, and the rest of the team will be very happy to see Republicans act in this manner because they could be Mr. Speaker uh, in the next term. You know, from a political science perspective, the crazy thing is that historically, you know, polarized parties empowers the speaker. And that is usually because the polarization is policy-based. Because these folks are having a tactical intramural disagreement, it doesn't seem to follow. In other words, we would expect a speaker to have a lot of power in this situation in terms of being polarized between Democrats and Republicans. And it appears, because it's tactical and not policy, that this is a unique situation where the speaker will actually be unusually weak because he has so many sort of tactical insurgents in his party. Wow, there's a lot going on. <laughs> this is just great fodder for you three. <laughs> it really is. It really is. It's sociology, political uh, science, and psychology all in all one. In one. Yep. But right now, I was glad to have this conversation with you three from the political perspective, and I thank you so much for joining me. Our pleasure. Thank you. Gerald Duquette is an associate professor of political science and director of the Public Administration Degree Program at Central Connecticut State University. Aaron O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at UMass Boston, and Shannon Jenkins is the associate dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at UMass Dartmouth and a professor of political science. And all three are members of the Mass Politics Profs blog. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.